core core insight right of rebag is this is very true historically actually there's a lot of good statistics on this like if you if you bought like especially birkin handbags uh, you know a decade ago like you would have beat the s&p for instance it's pretty great and, and it works largely for some some chanel handbag Welcome everybody to Sobre Mesa podcast. Today we have a special guest, someone very close to the FJ family, Charles Gora, who's the CEO and founder of WeBag. WeBag is an online fashion retailer focused on secondhand luxury items. Um, think about designer bags, shoes, jewelry, and it's also a leading brand in the very trendy circular economy. The most important thing to me though, Charles, is you're a Frenchman, so you understand this concept of sobremesa um you have practiced with this food loving country um long lunch breaks so i think we're going to have a good time uh you have practiced with this so welcome to the show yeah no glad to be here thanks for inviting me appreciate it great um charles let's start from the beginning um looking at your profile banking p mba uh there's nothing screaming tech let alone fashion so walk us through your kind of finance bro background and what made you deviate from that? Yeah, definitely not bro. Uh, finance, <laughs> finance. Yeah, that's fair. Um, so yeah, I mean, you're absolutely correct. I mean, I, I'm not from this world. I'm not from fashion. I'm not even from tech initially, right? So I spent the first six, seven years of my career. That's what people did, right, in, in 2007, right? Like my first job, or right, well, 2006 was still the grand days of finance, right? So I started IBD, uh, investment bank at Goldman. And, and that was the thing that you did when you're, you want to stay a generalist and you think you're smart and you want to make a few bucks and you don't really know what you want to do in life. That's exactly so, what I did, by, by the way, <laughs> 10 exactly. years after you. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I did that. Uh, and then, you know, after a few years, I moved to private equity after that, which, uh, you know, I want to always want, I wanted to get closer to companies and sort of operating. And then after, after that, I realized even private equity was still very financially driven and not really operating and say, okay, what do I want to do with my life? And, and that's where I went to the MBA. And so I went to HBS uh, 2012, right? So, and, and I think that's where it got started. And I think the luxury of having those two years on campus, you know, I mean, I had the luxury of spending those two years investing in ideas, meeting people. I mean, I'm sure we're going to talk about how I met Fabrice and FJ Labs and it's all of that is a process and to be honest has some serendipities you know yeah. like the, the but you the, knew you wanted yeah. to do that change at that point when you went to the mba yeah absolutely so if you read my essays uh, they say exactly this they say uh, hey i want to get out of finance i want to start a company uh, i want to do some and i wanted to start a company in the sort of internet right with a big i so i, I was pretty Spot on on those two things, but frankly, that could be a million things. So now how and why and business models and sectors, all of that is largely serendipitous. Totally. And and to your point on generalist, right? Because this this um jobs, consulting, banking, PE, and a bunch of other generalist jobs it is it, the personality behind those is typically people that get easily excited with a bunch of things, generally smart. But it's hard to narrow down into one idea. So you, when you when you went to the MBA to HBS and said, "Okay, I want to do something in the internet," <laughs> just as broad as you can think of, how did you narrow down to okay, fashion or 
how do you go about starting that process to narrow down to one thing? Yeah, so it, it sounds silly, right, saying it, but that's literally what I did. I said, you know, but to be honest, even saying I want to do something digital, right, would be the way to think about it. Like that already excludes a bunch of things because, frankly, at the beginning, I even thought, I don't know, I can start a restaurant, I can start a, a hotel chain, right? So I really thought about entrepreneur with a BE, and then I, I was convinced that entrepreneurship have to be digital. So that already makes the world a little bit smaller. And then I went really through this like funnel thing, which is a combination of like, what can I, what am I interested in slash what am I good at? And when you do the intersection of these two things, it starts becoming pretty small, right? Because I realized pretty soon, I'm not a technical person to your point. So every time I literally went to these meetups, you know, on campus, it's like whatever, healthcare, you know, biotech, uh, hardware, deep tech, I'm like, I don't know any of that stuff. So I think if you have a generalist background, as you say, it's very difficult to go into more like hardcore tech, right? So I thought pretty quickly, I have to go more like the consumer road or I have to go, I have to go internet enabled, right? So, Got and it. that's also like, so that was the thought process is like not- So you started with a process of elimination in a way. It's exactly that. It's like, what, what can I not do? Right. Where because it would be ridiculous, right, if I want to start or whatever, or fix cancer or something like I don't know anything about uh, it. So it didn't really make much sense. So I thought consumer is something much more approachable. Uh, and so that's how I read. But then in consumer, I thought about business models and really, really themes. Right. Or like, you know, there's that idea of passion or themes. And so the reality, I didn't have a passion, you know, so that maybe would have made the process a whole lot easier. Right. If you say, I don't know, my my passion, my passion was not luxury. Hundred percent, hundred percent. I I when I I you know thought about starting a company many times in my life, and I always got very excited about X Y Z idea, and I thought it was a tremendous idea, but never executed because to your point, it wasn't the idea. And so to me, uh, in my mind, I had to be extremely passionate about something so passionate that I had to dedicate 10 years of my life. Maybe what's the saying? Maybe we should adapt the saying of those who can um, do and those who cannot become venture capitalists. Maybe, maybe that's what happened to me. Um, but like, how did you, how did you say, um, okay, now I'm going with this. If you didn't have that passion, which is a prerequisite for a bunch of people to say, okay, I'm spending yeah. the rest of my five years in, in this. Yeah. And I think I got passionate over time. So really what happened is I started, yeah, I, I started investigating a theme. So it actually didn't really start with resale or it really started with that idea of how technology solves for waste. That was kind of my guiding light. Waste, like, I really love that idea. Think about it. It's hard to understand now. This was 2012. Like, it was kind of the beginning of Uber, right? Uber is like 2009, right? Or like Airbnb is 2009, 2010. So you're talking, these businesses existed, you know, TaskRabbit, right? Like, I was interested in all these businesses that technology helps. There's essentially a fixed asset or some sort of capacity, Right. And then you're kind of making, you know, recycling or reusing that idle time or that idle closet. Right. Or what or your idle car or your idle house. You know, so that was kind of my idea. And and then I narrowed it down. And to be honest, I had an internship. You know, sometimes it's this where there's a serendipity is in life. You know, the, the way it happened is 
the summer between HBS, right? Like you, you actually have two years. And so usually if you want to start a company, you go either work on a project or you take an internship somewhere that makes sense for you. And so I investigated like early stage startup that made sense. And basically I had two offers, you know, and one offer was in that company that was basically an Uber competitor that I think doesn't even exist anymore. Mm, I didn't uh, know that. It was, yeah, it was a London based, it was called Halo, H-A-I-L-O. And these guys, in two, they were the pioneers in London in 2010. You could have a halo on your phone way before Uber. And these guys were setting up in the U.S. And I thought that would be a huge thing. Well, it turns out I was kind of right in a way because Uber became a $100 billion thing, but halo became zero, right? Yeah, so, but you didn't pick uh, it, though. So you made the right, the, the right call. So I didn't do it. And then at the same time, I met the founders of Render One Way. And this kind of like... Sometimes you read things and you're like, I met them. They, I don't know if you know them, Jen and Jenny. They're sort of visionaries. I know just, all of them, yeah. It's incredible. And all of it makes sense. There's like, you know, I have a clause. I want to be in the fashion. I want to be in the know of fashion. I want access product. I don't have an infinite wallet. I don't want to waste the planet, you know, trashing, you know, with fast fashion goods. And I thought that whole idea was intriguing to me. And, and they were super special. And I pulled down that thread and then it's more, you know, that's how I got started. And then it's, it's the thread that I pulled. Understood. Can, can you maybe explain? Cause to me, it wasn't obvious at first when, when you, when people mention um, how sustainable secondhand is and how bad for the environment is some, not, not, not all of them, not all of them, but some sort of fashion is so bad for the environment. Uh, can you throw a couple of stats at us to, to, to paint that yep. picture? Yeah, no, for sure. So, uh, so, so some some of the stats, uh, textile, right? Fashion slash textile, second most polluting industry in the world, right? Already there, right? Pretty much, which, which is crazy, right? So everything, most of what you know, most of what you wear ends up somewhere uh, in a landfill, usually somewhere around Africa or Asia, right? And so it's, it's really, really, there's a lot of reports on this. Uh, I'm not, you know, things like Shein, you know, that's now the new, the new H&M, the new Zara, like you're buying like a, a $5, uh, you know, t-shirt, a $1 t-shirt, like, how do you think it's made? Where, how long do you think it's going to, where do you think it ends up, right? So there's obviously a spectrum, uh, but that's, it's definitely a prime. And so obviously on the luxury side of things, you're dealing with much more, uh, strong and, and reliable product over time, but uh, it's 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 a huge problem, and so that's what I liked about it. Is not only it solves for a, a personal need, which is you want to be in the know, you want to be you know with great product, you want to be on the trend, but at the same time you want to be mindful of environment. And and I definitely had that idea, you know, again ten years ago that eventually sustainable commerce or sustainable values would become mission critical just because of uh, environmental purposes and uh, and so that was definitely in the in the the vision if you will the, the core trends identified yeah and it's interesting what you're mentioning um I know many entrepreneurs uh, without giving any names that at first were not hey this is my life's mission but they got increasingly more excited the more they dug into it and so that's what seems to happen to you and maybe that's a message to other entrepreneurs that 
maybe you just don't need to find the your life's calling from day one and it just grow on grows on you and then it's just a matter of solving problems every day and eventually it becomes your life's mission but not maybe from day one yep um completely agree charles before moving more to the nitty-gritty of the business i want to touch upon your um experience as a frenchman in the u.s because you're in new york right now business in, in the u.s uh but you didn't have a visa originally right like how how is it like to start a company in the U.S. as a foreigner? Yeah, it's super hard, man. Honestly, uh, we we could do a whole other podcast. Uh, yeah, just, yeah. <laughs> I, I like to do this joke that if if you know after a rebag, I can probably start an immigration law firm because I've I've learned so much. I am so deep into the tech. There is not one visa that I probably <laughs> haven't heard about. All of the uh, letters, yeah. Dude, it's so, so, so much though. So the reality is I've been on five different statuses since I'm in the US, right? Can you imagine that? So uh, it's incredibly difficult. Is Who the reality. sponsored your visa? Did you have to sponsor your own as Rebag? Yeah, I didn't do that. So uh, actually uh, our investors sponsored my first visa. Mm. So in the order of things first, and that's a good trick if people listen, uh, as yeah. part of the MBA or really, you know, any any sort of graduate school or college in the U.S., uh, on your student visa, there's usually a one year what they call OPT, which is basically a free extra year. With So that's super valuable for entrepreneurs. And if you're in science, whether it's STEM, you have like a, a three year. So that is incredible, right? If you are on a, a science master's in the U.S. and you get three years, it's a huge difference between one year and three years. Because in one year, it means you need to start a company and figure out your next visa pretty much at the same time. You know, if you have three years, you can do a lot of ideation and trials, et cetera. Uh, so I kind of did that. And then and then there's a few like letters that we can go through. But yeah, I had like what's called an investor visa at the beginning. Uh, and then I've never had H-1Bs, which is the employee visa. Yeah, that's the one I have. Yeah. yeah, but many, many, uh, as a CEO of your company, you can actually be employed as an H-1B. Uh, yeah. That's one thing you can do. And then eventually I got more like green green card path, which I'm on now. But obviously all of these have bigger hurdles. So uh, totally. it takes time. Of, yeah, all sorts of statuses. Mm. Yeah, so the 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 bar is so much higher for for foreigners starting companies. I think the stat is like 55% or so of, the billion dollar startups in America are started by or were started by by foreigners. Now, do you think that there's a correlation there? Do you think like, you know, these people are so challenged and they're, you know, they have to make it work? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. And honestly, there's also probably a range, right? But definitely, if you want to make it here, uh, you definitely went through some hurdles at the very minimum administrative hurdles. Uh, and for some other people, also, you know, life hurdles and all sorts of situations, which on my end, I was lucky. I, I didn't really have to deal with too much of that, but obviously that adds. On my end, it was more administrative because you're dealing with the time clock. It's like not only you have to create a company, but you are time bound and your company needs to be progressed enough that it can sustain your, your own immigration status unless, unless you play this one card. Right, where then you don't need anything, and then you get married to an American person. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, the, that's the move. That's the move. Yeah, it's the, it's incredible. Like I joke with a lawyer one day, and it's like, okay, I can tell you this, 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 that, but the one, the one thing is you get married, and then that solves everything. You know that people sell their marriages, right? Like for twenty k, ten k, whatever. 
No, it's, I've, it's, I've, I've, I've heard that it's before. Crazy. So it's thank crazy. God I didn't, I didn't have to do that. But uh, <laughs> yeah, just FYI, I, I know people who had to anticipate civil sure. marriages to facilitate status yeah. for sure. Charles, going back to the ideation phase, uh, and maybe you can tell us a little bit uh, about your your history with FJ and and discuss a little bit the studio model because that's another decision a bunch of uh, entrepreneurs in the earlier stage of of their careers are thinking maybe you know have an offer from this studio model and there's a wide variety of different studios and different terms etc. But well, what's your take around studio models? Maybe you can talk about your experience at FJ. Um, and would you, what do you like, or maybe what do you like less about them? Mm -hmm. No, to me, yeah, for sure. I gave a lot of thought to that. Uh, and by the way, remember all of this was 10 years ago now, you know, which sounds just, so I think when I did that, none of this was remotely as organized as what you see now. Right. So it was kind of like in, in flux or in the mate. So. Uh, for those who listen to us, you know, yeah, eventually I started a company with FJ Labs, which is, you know, mostly Fabrice Grinda and, and Jose Marin, uh, two, uh, you know, worldwide uh, uh, marketplace entrepreneurs. Um, and so I met Fabrice uh, through uh, basically business school. Actually, uh, one one teacher of mine made an intro. But you see, this is how little I knew about the internet, right, or market. Like, I didn't know Fabrice. I've never heard about Fabrice until I was uh, on campus, right? So I made that intro, you know, for, for my business school teacher. And then I talked to his team, et cetera. And so the idea, it came very quickly because that's also how Fabrice operates, right? At the end of the day, you know, the, the way the studio works is a lot about relationship, just like every company in the world, right? And so to your point earlier, the main difference I think is because I'm a generalist, I think the stu and I'm a first time entrepreneur, you also have to recognize your your what you you're missing, right? And for me, I'm def when I started, I was definitely not a technologist, limited background. Also, did not have a co-founder at the time, right? Although I was certain, I was doing all these meetups and you know meet your CTO and all that stuff, and it didn't clean. So for me, it made a lot of sense because it was very much like de-risking the project, you know, and you know, and it was like, listen, these guys they do this all the time. They have this track record. Uh, what am I going to do on my own? I've never done, I've never even been in a company, right? That's the reality. I've been in a bank. I've been in private equity firm. I've never really been in a company. So what am I going to build a company? You know? So you have to realize that. And so then there's a discussion, obviously, on economics, et cetera, which these things have evolved. And uh, you have to think about what does the, the studio, right, or the team brings to you. And to me, uh, what Fabrice and Jose done, I, I'll do this over a million times. You know, I've, I've, had, I've had like a million times the value of what they gave me uh, because, you know, they're like, when I have a question, they have an answer. <laughs> so that's pretty valuable. Yeah. Right? I'm like, for yeah. Free especially reason, at the I'm beginning. Thinking, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it, it's very true that obviously the value is disproportionately in the early stages because after, you know, one or two years, you raise additional capital, you have a bigger team. Uh, they're still there, obviously, in a strategic way. But the like you, you, Fabrice Grinda who's the guy who, who made multi-hundred million dollar exits, the, made the first mock-ups of Rebag. You know, <laughs> he, he, was, he was our like first like product manager of sorts. Like we were spending hours and hours reviewing mock-ups. Like how valuable is that? That's crazy. Um, Charles, in, in, now that we're on the, on the Rebag topic again, uh, one thing that I'm curious about is 
you guys own the inventory, correct? Or maybe maybe let's take a step back and 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 tell us more about the process of rebag and and maybe the the way of doing that the, the, is just walking us through the consumer point of view end to end. Uh, what happens? What what should I do? What should I expect? And then then we'll delve into more questions. Yeah, absolutely. So Rebag is fairly specific. Obviously, you, listeners may be familiar with uh, many, many resale platforms, you know, things like, you know, Poshmark, Real, Real, obviously eBay, etc. So we're fairly specific in two ways. One is we're, we're ultra high end. Right? So we're really uh, in the world of accessories, mostly handbags, jewelry, watches, you're talking multi-hundred dollar product, most of the time multi-thousand dollar product, and often multi-tens of thousands of dollar product. So think uh, extreme, extreme end uh, of the spectrum. And because of that, we're able to run a very specific model uh, that you know you can call a managed marketplace or end-to-end -end marketplace, where basically you, the seller, uh, we do all the work essentially, right? So including buying the product. So the seller makes a quote. Uh, we have now a bunch of like super cool valuation software that we can talk about. And if you like the quote, you basically send us the product. We audit it for a couple of days at the warehouse and then you we pay, right? And if you go to our stores, because we do have stores we even do that on the spot and then we own the product. And, and that's we, the we, first question I wanted to ask because the real, real and most of the other kind of similar companies for secondhand uh, fashion clothing and, and items, they run a consignment model. So like mm -hmm. you take the item, if you sell it, fine, you'll get a commission. If if you don't sell it, then tough luck. Yep. Like why do you think, why going against that kind of current and then taking the inventory? Yeah, so the, the main reason there is because in the market that we're in, because we're on the ultra high-end side of the spectrum, it turns out that the constraints in this market is not demand, right? It's not selling, you know, it's very easy for us to sell a Chanel bag that's like new uh, at a good discount. The problem is how do we acquire it, right? And so this is, this is and, and our simple idea, right? Was really that if you remove the friction on the seller side, if you make it easier for the seller, then you acquire the preferred high quality supply that currently doesn't move through alternative, you know, constructs. And so that was, you know, I didn't wake up a day and say, oh, it would be great if we buy product, right? It was kind of a thought process where I was seeing all this value in closets and I was doing all and asking people like, you have like those 20 items there. Like, do you know of eBay? Like, I'm sure you know what a consignment store is, right? And they're like, why don't you do it? And at the end of the day, someone told me this in Charles, like, this is too much for me. You know, I don't have the time. Like, listen, take whatever you want, do your thing, give me a check. Yeah. like that's it this is what it is so to you that was the best way to unlocking supply it's to you that was that. the main thing yeah and, and just to be clear it's it's the way to unlock supply is you could summarize it as removing friction but sure. a big part of removing friction is <laughs> just give, show me the money yeah. liquidity exactly yeah interesting um Understood. And the other kind of question I had especially with your experience that went the runway I was listening to an interview the other day um one of the founders and and she was talking about the vision of the experience economy as opposed to kind of owning the items mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and you know you you're you you started and ran the wrong way in a way and that kind of inspired you why did you go the ownership route as opposed to the experience slash renting route 
That's a great question. Um, you know, I really love the, the the rental model. I think it's a very, very valid trend and there's a huge, huge consumer need for that. The, the main issue with that, and, and you kind of see it today, right, with, with Rent the Runway, is really unit economics and just operations slash financing of the model, right? Because if you think about it, especially how they do it in, right, yeah, I, I'm sure there's a million of people who want to pay $100 a month and, and get, you know, the huge value. But the problem is the operate. I mean, even when I was there, they had it was like eight years ago. Right? They had the biggest dry cleaner in America. So imagine <laughs> now, right? That is wild. It's it's incredible. They had you know thirty seamstresses, right? So there's so much work. And the problem is, even if a hundred dollars subscription, you know, is, is 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 obviously not cheap. But given all the costs that are involved. I always tell it was very difficult. Uh, and so that's kind of how I iterated. And I thought, if you want to make the unit economics work, it's probably more on the higher end side of things. Um, but to be honest, we we are, you know, we have looked into equivalent, right? You could say, and, and I think it's still like in the cards somehow. Uh, we have a program we call Infinity, where essentially people who buy from us can exchange their item back at a guaranteed price. So that's kind of a, a proxy for, for this, another uh, item or for money? For credits, basically, for store mm. credits. So if you buy anything from us, uh, I think within three months, we give you back 80 cents, 80% in, in the form of credits. And it's even it's, and it's 60 cents in, in 12 months in credits, right? So it's kind of the idea, right, of the how do we generate that circularity, not necessarily with rental, but, uh, you know, it's always something we, we look into. And it's, it's not impossible that we get into that. It's just they're very big operational and, and financial issues as well, in particular in working capital. Charles, now that, you, now that we're in this topic of unit economics, uh, I want to address sort of the, the elephant in the room, right? Uh, I think the market cap of, of Rent the Runway is whatever, $100 million or so, something yep. tiny. You look at the graph of the Real Real, which is another similar company. They lost 95% or something of their value yep. since IPO. And the, the key thing here is that, to your point, economics do not work, and these guys are still losing money. So, you know, how can you, when looking at those comps that could be you in the future, how can you avoid that path? And how can you differentiate and maybe even learn from from maybe their mistakes or, or misinterpretations um, that, that these guys did? Yeah, I mean, you, you're spot on. I guess there's a couple of things there. One is, you know, generally there's a current market moves, et cetera, that, you, you know, the market has been pretty, pretty dire, obviously, over the last year because of all these macro trends. So there's been a, a general, uh, uh, you know, re, revaluation of, of all things, in particular, given rate increase, uh, undesirability of any business model that burns cash uh, in perpetuity, which, by the way, should make good sense. Right. And so to me, that's uh, that's kind of healthy in a way now. OK, 100 million, maybe that's a little bit brutal, but but fundamentally, you're correct. Right. This is not a surprise, because if you, you know, if you discuss with Fabrice, et cetera, like. This is very clear to us that these businesses, I don't know that they that they have in the current way ever profitable unit economics. Right. For a very simple reason, which we discussed, right, is like, you know, even think about it as a real real. They take so many things. Right. They take those 30 categories. Like at some point, they even took furniture or whatever. But yeah, they, I think they now they're closing a bunch of their categories, their unprofitable yeah. categories. Yeah. yeah. But like, how, how is that? How do you need 12 years to you know you? I read the, the <laughs> yeah, minutes yeah. from their, their recent call. Right. And, and it basically said, oh, like we're 
we're stopping, you know, anything under like $50. I'm like, wh why did you so have I, that? In I the guess first maybe place? The, the tension, just to play devil's advocate, what they were probably trying to do is increase recurrence and saying, okay, now they're a, we're in their house. What else can we, you know, yep. sell these guys to? And so, from that perspective, it makes sense. But from from the other point of view, if you're getting into a category that will never make money, maybe you're subsidizing the more profitable categories. But, um, yeah. So to you, it's just a matter of focus on economics and profitable categories that will differentiate. It's a matter of balance because I think your your point is very valid as well. And we we had in a way the opposite problem, right? Which is we, yeah. we started we started with one category. Hyper focused, right? we, yeah. Yeah, we started with bags and we did that for like six years. We did just bags and accessories, right? So we had the 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 opposite thing, ultra focus, which I think was well suited, but at some point, we also had the same question, you know, there, you know, we don't, we have low recurrence, right? Just because people are not buying a $2,000 bag every second, right? So like, you know, if we sell you, if we see you uh, once a year or twice a year, we're already very happy, right? So that's kind of our prime. And so we, it's a matter of balance, right? So we've been for sure going on the other route, which is adding categories, but we try to add categories that share similar specificities, right? Sort of high AOV, you know, high desirability, high liquidity, and all of them have like some minimum bar, right? You're not really going to see on the side anything lower than like $300, et cetera. Uh, because even, even on $300 item, to be honest, we don't really, we don't really make much, right? We take it for, uh, you know, you could think about it as a yeah, service to customers, right? So, um, and that, that's the tension, Right is the the real real model or others? It's it's great because it's it's a lot of service, right? Like they come to your house, like it's it's super great, right? But then uh, they have a thousand people, right? That drive cars, that go to people's closets, right? There's like hundred million payroll just on that, right? So that's a problem. And so our, our foe, the, the challenge has always been: you go for single source, which I think is what they're trying to do, right? It's to your point, I'm in your closet. I'm gonna grab grab as much as I can. But if I grab if I grab twenty things, and then I go to the warehouse, and then ten of them, uh, they're like whatever, fifty bucks, a hundred bucks, and then I have to return them, you know, and then I have to store them somewhere, right? And then someone still has to take the pictures of them, and so you're like probably there's a middle ground somewhere where you're trying to maximize lifetime value, but also you're not onboarding negative unit economics items. Yeah. Um, I mean, we could take this conversation to many different routes, but uh, before I forget, I want to talk about the, what I think is sort of the crux of the matter in this, in this sort of models uh, and the real, real they had a ton of issues with this is the authentication process. Um, right. and I know this is a sensitive topic because you don't want to give away any secret sauce, but without giving away anything, can you walk us through like, how does it happen? You know, I give you a $5,000 uh, Chanel bag or whatever, what's the process? How do you decide this is the real thing versus this is a fake? Um, and again, without giving away any sensitive No, no, but it's okay. But, but the reality, there's sort of two two dimensions to this. And so over the years, uh, first of all, this is a huge topic, right? So one of the reasons why we ran the, the managed marketplace model or sort of the full inventory model is exactly for that reason, right? Because, uh, you know, someone who's paying multi-thousand dollars they need to know uh, that, you know, they need some sort of guarantee that, you know, this is accurate, this is truthful, et cetera, which, which makes good sense. And that's exactly the difference between a, a, a specialized marketplace, kind of like we are, and something more generalist, right? Like uh, maybe an eBay, et cetera. 
uh, although you will see now that eBay is building a lot of these uh, more like managed features for that exact purpose, right? But authentication is, is one of them. And so historically, when you send us something, basically it has to go through the hands of experts, right? To this day, this is still the number one route, right? And, uh, you know- This is a human being inspecting the object. Exactly. It's exactly yeah. that. Obviously, it's a bit more evolved. You know, we, sure. we, we've consolidated the knowledge, etc. There are a few technologies out there that try to uh, address this need. But to this point, it's, it's still, and that's one of the problems, it's still largely a, a human uh, decision. And this talent is extremely rare, right? So uh, what we had to do over the years is obviously we had to recruit external authenticators, but there's not enough people who uh, are these are, people? Like, who? what does it mean to be an authenticator? What did yeah, they do before? Honestly, it's like if you're on a career that you're never going to need a job ever and have fully employed, <laughs> be an authenticator, right? This Don't is, code, just authenticate. Uh, yeah, probably yeah. code is a, probably <laughs> code is a good one. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, authentication is like it's it's uh, one to ten in terms of supply and demand, right? So, And the problem is because there is no training. There is no train. There is no school where you learn these things. Like you can go to the history of art, right? That's a class, and then maybe you can work at Sotheby's, etc., or in a museum. You cannot. You can go to a history of fashion. You cannot yet go to an authenticator track. And I think eventually that will uh, that will be one. And so you have to find people from different profiles, right? Which obviously people who had that experience before is one of them, but most of the time they don't. So you find people who have. Uh, product knowledge, right, is where we start. You know, people who are really experts. And the reality, the way you learn the product is like everything in life is by exposing yourself to the product and being absolutely passionate about, you know, every time there's a new season, you go to the store, you 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 go online, you watch all the all the forums and and you you know micro zoom on everything and you take notes of oh this is new, this is new. And eventually you build this like mental database. The whole work that we had to do is how do you document that, right? How do you make someone who has a lot of like, you know, internal knowledge and make it more into of a, a repeatable framework? And so we had to, you know, document these and, and training these. And so now we do have, you know, training, training ways and, and we can teach people authentication who have the right passion and also the right skills, which largely has to do with, you know, observation, minutia, uh, you know, and focus. That's very interesting. And there's also an, a big automation and data play here, right? Maybe you can tell us a bit more about Clear and that whole initiative, valuation initiative as well. Yeah, so so Clear is a huge deal. It's uh, Clear is our essentially a pricing and, and recognition AI. Uh, and so what it does, uh, it basically- Just quick is clarification. Clear um, assumes everything is, so Clear is just valuation or it assumes it's, it's uh, it also identifies if it's fake or not? No, so Claire, Claire is not an authentication tool. Got it. Understood. We, so assumes so, once we understand this is the real thing, then what's it worth? It's exactly that. So mm. and actually it's reversed. Claire, Claire is able to recognize an item based on one image. It's able to tell you what the item is, and it's able to tell you what Rebag wants to pay. Now that's, all that's of that, crazy. all of that assumes, all of that assumes that the item is authentic. Now then you will send it to us. And it will go through uh, our sort of you know, expert protocol to to validate that. 
Got it. Understood. So before leaving the authentication conversation, just give us some tips for the next time we're thrifting or or buying secondhand bags or something. What are some uh, kind of counterfeit identification one-on-one tips that you can give? Like, what should we look for? Yeah, yeah, I, I can give you a thing, but this this is the the most funny thing is I I can never be an authenticator. <laughs> most so if, if I'm with you and you would you would just buy a Louis Vuitton from the street. <laughs> do not do not no definitely not that that I can tell you is fake. But like, do you see? It's like sometimes they show me things and I just do not see. Yeah, you see. So they're yeah. saying so. Obviously, the th- I can tell you the things we look at. Right. Like we look at, you know, the stitching. Right. Obviously, some of these items have like serial codes. So there's a lot of literature about this uh, in Louis Vuitton in particular. Uh, there are specific date codes that you can research. You know, you can put that, you know, query and it's very easily findable on the Internet. Or we have good resources at Rebag. And at least you can check that the code, for instance, is, is a legitimate code. Right. But that's kind of like the very much the baseline. Right. It, it's not going to tell you that it's true is going to tell you if it's a, if it's a bad fake, right? Then you, there, there's things like, you know, stitching, there's things like order, you know, which is always a fun one. Uh, you know, the order, like, does it feel, you know, this plastic order, right? So uh, you don't want to smell like almost like oil kind of thing. You don't want to smell that. Right? So, so hard to automate. Yeah. That's, that's the thing. That's the problem, right? That's why to, to this day, there's not yet great, great technology. There, there's some uh, that use like microscopes, etc. but, Eventually, and we can talk about it, it will be sold through like blockchain and, and I think other ways. Uh, but, you know, that's why it's very difficult to build a, a vision driven AI tool because it, you're talking about incredible minute. You're talking about a micro zoom stitching, you know, that's like maybe one millimeter to the left instead of being one millimeter to the right. Do you think that's the next uh, next step, Charles, using NFTs um, to kind of authenticate? bags and high value items yeah it has to be right so I'm, I'm definitely not an expert in in blockchain and nft but uh, i've been looking into it obviously over the past couple of years it's very clear that this is one of the best use cases of the blockchain right because what you want to see is you want to see something that is permanent right that is tagged in some sort of an irreversible way Right. And so, you know, writing things in a ledger, for instance, and like transferring, you know, certificate, uh, you know, these are these are all things that are very, very much applicable. And there are actually a lot of technologies now. I mean, even LVMH has started like its own blockchain uh, that's called Aura. uh, And it's trying to make like some sort of like industry wide consortium. Like at the end of the day, how this has to be solved, it has to be solved at the source where manufacturers in particular luxury. Yeah, you, you can insert a chip or a plug or, you know, some kind of NFC and it's in the product, which makes it difficult to to extract, if you will. I think it makes total sense. And and I'm surprised most of the NFT push that I've seen from high-end brands were most on mostly on the, you know, we're doing an NFT drop for this exclusive piece or these, you know, very limited edition thing, more like a PR or engagement yep. Um approach more than on the this kind of solution for counterfeit which is a huge issue these guys have yeah no and and there is and there there is really in particular the, this our blockchain it's already up there like for instance louis vuitton has started to integrate nfcs uh in some of their most most recent series right the, the and and you know there's a, a sort of companion app 
if you will, that, that they can scan at the stores and, you know, it tells you if it's true, true, not true. The, the, the problem is that in order to fix that at the store, the resale product is, is the historical product. So everything you or me or anyone has in their closet was made obviously in the last years or decades. So it is not timed. So imagine yeah. it's going to, it's good. The prime is going to take maybe 10, <clears throat> 15, gonna, 20 yeah, years. That makes sense. That makes to, sense. But eventually it will be fixed. But, but yeah, you can't solve the yeah. problem for the items that are already in the street, maybe going exactly. forward. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. And if where you does compound that... that over decades, eventually most of the product gets stagged and problem solved. Yeah, that's that's a fair point. And where does that leave you guys? Because uh, if one of the things that would enable them to do, if they have NFTs for their own things, is to have potentially their own resale marketplace, right? Um, so how do you see Rebag interacting in that world? Let's think that that happens in a couple of years. Oh, yeah. And, that, and that's I, th I think that's completely where it's going. Right. So uh, eventually, uh, and that was the whole thesis since the beginning, right, is that eventually these these worlds would merge. Right. Because first hand luxury, second hand luxury, it's all just of a customer journey. You know, it's it's it's, you know, one day I buy first hand, one day I buy second hand. And if you can make these work together, then you get the customer into that cycle. Like I always say, you know, like imagine all the, the reback customers. They're sort of the next generation, right? People who buy from us, they're the next generation of luxury users. So there is a value for brands to get in that business. And likewise, on the sales side, these tend to be more premium customers and we give them liquidity. What do you think they do with the liquidity? They go and buy the new seasons, they reinvest, right? So if you can figure that out, it all becomes this like loop. And so eventually I expect, you know, all the brands or groups or retailers to get in that business somehow, I think, the, and it's starting to happen. Uh, the problem is one, uh, you know, things are very slow, right, in, in that world, right? So things take time. Uh, and also two is all the unit economics and, and operational issue that we discussed, they're also gonna have that, right? And so that's the problem. And so I think this is where the opportunity is for, for a company like ours at Rebag is that uh, there's not really gonna be a shortcut to rebuilding everything we built, right? Like it, it's it's almost eight years. It's, you know, 100 million plus of investments. It's great people, it's great technology, it's authenticator. So there's not really gonna be a shortcut to that. So we think eventually we can enable that, right? Is where we're trying to go. We, we can power resale on the luxury side of things for brands, for retailers, for other marketplaces, for auction houses, for anyone who, because we can make it plug and play in something that's incredibly difficult to to start from scratch. Yeah, and and going back to your original boss, I think the original idea went the wrong way was to do this as a service, a white label solution. And and I, I forget who they, who did they pitch this to, but they they, they didn't agree. Uh, but I totally agree. This should be uh, where the things go in 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 the next couple of years. What's your relationship today with the brands, Charles? And I'm sure you're gonna say great, but uh, <laughs> I'm sure there's also some contention. Uh, yeah, I mean, to be honest, yeah, we, we don't have any problem with the, the reality is we do not have relationships with brands is the short very like we have conversations with brands, you know, obviously we talk to them all the time, most of them. Uh, but to this day, we are we are completely independent from the brands. Right. And so but that's exactly what we'd like to change. And, you know, the funny thing is we're having this conversation in 2022. I had this same podcast seven years ago. 
right? And things haven't really progressed that much. You know, it's just the reality, right? Like, now that's not completely true. The, the only thing that changed between now and when we got started, I would say that in the first two, three, four years, I had to convince in the, those discussions, uh, a lot of these executives that, that resale mattered. For sure, yeah. It's That's why I said at the beginning, the circular economy is super trendy these days. Yes. So that that is the main difference. Like to, today, you know, things like sustainability are much yeah. more top of our mind. You know, all of this is now obvious. You know, the resale market in general with us and many, many other companies is much, much, much bigger than it used to be in the U.S. and in the world. So I think it's like check, check, check. Everyone understands for many reasons it has to be. I think now the questions have shifted more to, to the how, right? And that kind of like was your question is like, first of all, there is that issue that most resale businesses are like unprofitable or negative unit economics. So, you know, that that's not really appealing to anyone who wants to get into this business, right? It's like, yeah, I, I want to do resale as a brand, but I'm clearly seeing there's some, some complexities there. So that's a big hurdle in terms of investments and decision-making. And so there's all these discussion, you know, should, should I use a partner? Should I start my own thing? And frankly, you've seen all of it. You know, there's been, uh, there's been uh, acquisitions, there's been partnerships, uh, there's been a couple of companies trying to do their own thing. There's been white label solutions. And so there's a bit of trial and error. Uh, my perception is that uh, the more you go into the luxury side of things, the more you're going to want to have control, right? Because of the, because of the, the demands of the customer, right? Like, and I think that's why also these companies will take more time than others because they're obviously very nervous about, you know, anytime you're going to touch the customer, interact with the customer, things have a high bar. So it's not a surprise to me that most of what you see now in terms of partnerships or third-party resale, they're more on the entry-level side of things, right? Because this is a bit more of a, of a flow business. We're looking at the whole circular economy um, landscape, and this is more uh, the investor in me asking the question. There's a lot of different propositions, and looking at it from the inside, what do you think is closer to? Because to, to your point before, right? You we've we've been discussing this for ten years, and sometimes there's two ways of investing: early or way too early. And so I'm I'm sure within the landscape of the circular economy, there are things that might happen. But, but at a later stage, not really. So what do you think is ripe for, you know, starting to really grow within the circular economy today? Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting uh, to, to be honest. They're, they're still like, uh, you know, on rental, for instance, right? That, that's one that, that has not been cracked, to my knowledge, anywhere. Right. So, for instance, I can tell you the ideas that I, I've been hearing uh, for the last decade almost. And that, in my opinion, have to this day 100% failure everywhere in the world. Uh, that idea of a peer-to-peer -peer rental, right? At least for fashion, you know. Every every year, I talk to 10 people who you know have, and which is a beautiful idea, right? Which is, you know, I have my closet, and you have it's like this decentralized, you know, peer-to-peer -peer sharing, and it's. But then you look into the unit economics and the reality, and it's like. How is that gonna work, right? Because I own my thing, you're gonna you're gonna rent it what for like uh, fifty bucks. I'm gonna take uh, ten, and I have to like dry clean it, etc. And so this is, for instance, an idea that you you want to work because it's beautiful, and it has hurt itself on the realities uh, of unit economics and scaling. 
even things like I would extend that even to rental in general, right? It's like one-off rentals have pretty much failed consistently, right? So that idea, uh, and then this one in particular, rent the runway has moved to more like subscription, like membership-based rental, right? So that to me is a big a big trend that you're seeing because otherwise, again, with, with all the friction costs and the customer marketing, et cetera, you know, if it's like, hey, you know, whatever, rent a tuxedo for a wedding kind of thing, this is very much of a one-off. It's very difficult to make it work versus more, I think, where where most of the, the rental models, they've they've moved from one-off to uh, exactly like permanent or semi-permanent. And and I think that's where maybe the uniconomics meets the meets the dream, right? Because obviously you can amortize the customer, you have more LTV, et cetera. So something that I would look into, you know, if you're investors or entrepreneur out there, I would be worried about purely one-off uh, rental situations. And, and if you're looking at that, more like some sort of recurring uh, stream uh, or, or, you know, that I think that that helps a lot. Charles, what's the deal with fashion as an investment? Because uh, that was also kind of news to me. Is, is that a thing? Yeah, and when no, I mean fashion as an investment is, yeah, it's like I'm buying a, buying a bag and it appreciates in value. Oh, I see what you're saying. Bag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, not so fashion this... as an investment in, in VC as more of a oh, personal God, investment. God. Yeah, yeah. No, so this is very mature. And to be honest, that's the that's the, the core core insight, right, of Rebag is this is very true. Historically, actually, there's a lot of good statistics on this. Like if you if you bought like especially Birkin handbags, uh, you know, a decade ago, like you would have beat the S&P, for instance. It's pretty crazy, and, and it works largely for some some Chanel handbags. So this is absolutely true. I give you a stat. You know, when we started the company maybe seven years ago, uh, the price of Chanel bags new versus now is two x. Right. So there's items that we were buying in stores uh, in 2014-15 in the U.S. five four five thousand bucks, and now it's probably nine or ten thousand dollars. Right. So so frankly, sometimes I think we should never have sold it. Right, because we were buying these things, you know, maybe three thousand dollars back in the days. We could have made, you know, a three hundred percent markup, you know. So, but the difference is this: obviously, on the appreciating assets in fashion or in luxury is still minimal, right? It's still very much constrained to, you know, the Birkins, you know, Hermes Birkins, Kelly's, Chanel. But what we've been doing at Rebag is because of our valuation knowledge and our tool, like. We actually publish a lot of literature about this. Like we have something we call the Claire Report, where basically we publish. I saw the... it. You didn't. You didn't publish the 2022 yet, right? Uh, yeah, we just did actually. Maybe like. Oh, a... so maybe maybe yeah. give us a what's the what's the latest? Like if for people trying to to buy, um, you know, holidays are coming, Christmas. What are what are the new or is it always stable? Like the same brands are typically the best performing ones. Yeah. So so that's the thing. There's always the the, the usual. The usual suspects, right? So, you no, know, this is no news to anyone. Uh, you know, Hermes, Birkins, and Kelly's. You know, the higher end of the Chanel bags, the limited edition Louis Vuitton. All of that is like core product. It retains value, often appreciates. So that there's not too too much news there. What's interesting, and what we're trying to educate people on, is that this uh, you could call it investor mindset, as you described. It actually can happen on other products that maybe people don't know about. For instance, all of the sort of limited editions, you know, streetwear, right? Like that's not a surprise. I mean, in sneakers, you know, 
people, uh, you know, you buy retail, there's a shortcut of, short, you know, shortness of supply. And so everybody knows that, right? But it also translates in fashion, a lot of the Supreme collaborations, for instance, you know, there's been Supreme XLV, right? So uh, if, you know, anything you, you can put there that usually has a, a pretty big premium. Yeah, and, and then you start getting into the collection side and the collectionist. It's exactly that. Uh, and typically there's one brand that we showcase in the report that's called Telfar, right? It's um, it's an American brand, uh, uh, two to $300 retail price, uh, but they did a great job at creating scarcity, uh, at creating desirability, and they resell for maybe five or $600, right? So uh, what's interesting in that, you see this investor mindset, it, you know, it can be translated in a way at any price point, you know, but just if you're smart about it, you know, it's like everything. If you do your research, you're going to pick up those things. If you query the Claire tool, we actually show you the value retention there. Yeah. So you can query, you can learn that. That's great. We should use more of the Claire tool, everybody. Um, so if you buy just an entry level product or whatever, then that probably depreciates. So it's not a matter of anything that's remotely good. Yeah, so the, the, the it varies very much by brand, etc. And so we we actually put this chart where we show you. But the the typical asset in fashion does depreciate, right? So we actually publish in that report the, the percentage of average retention from brands. And so uh, appreciating is the exception, right? Not not the norm. And this is where it goes into you know uh, become, becoming savvy and and knowing what you're doing, and uh, that's how you create arbitrage. Charles, uh, can't thank you enough for this time. Um, just want to give you two, three minutes. The floor is yours for any closing remarks. Where can people find more about you, about Rebag? Um, something we didn't discuss, I wish we we had, is the your brick and mortar presence as well. So maybe you can give some locations that you got that people can actually go and visit you in person. Yeah, absolutely. So we're, we're obviously uh, digital on Reback.com, on the app. We do have uh, our 10 stores uh, uh, in New York City, in Miami, in LA, in Greenwich, Connecticut. So uh, you can see us there. But on retail, you know, it's a very big topic, uh, particularly now for all, all sort of you know DTC businesses or even digital marketplaces. Everybody knows uh, for the past year or so, since the new iOS changes, uh, it's been very difficult to acquire a customer online. Uh, it's getting more and more expensive. And so uh, getting into retail or, or directly or through wholesale, uh, that's been usually a good source of growth. Obviously, Is it also mostly comes... branding in your opinion? The, no, so the user brick and mortar? Yeah, you can do it in different ways, right? Like if you can certainly have a, you know one or two showrooms and that's certainly a good like activation, but that obviously is not a, a scalable channel. You know, we've been trying to make retail a scalable channel uh, and it has its own challenges, uh, you know, and I don't think we really cracked it yet. One of the reasons retail works for us or is beneficial is because we have a very high-end product. So, you know, when you're, when you want to look at a $10,000 Birkin, there is a value in looking at it in person. Uh, the reality is luxury is still largely underpenetrated versus the typical uh, e-commerce penetration. Uh, it's only maybe 15% digital versus other categories. So it's still on the low, lower end side of things just because of the nature of the product and people want a luxury experience. You that know, didn't still... change with COVID because there was yeah, a big acceleration. It's so it yeah, it's a huge deal. Back in the days when we started, it was a sub 10%. So it was uh, maybe 8% digital 
And through COVID, it went to 20%, I think, the year of COVID. And now it's kind of like just around that. But you're spot on. The the 20% goal was supposed to be a 2025. Yeah, and and definitely that goal was met early on. But still on a relative basis, uh, it's underpenetrated to most other digital categories. Um, And it still means 80% plus of the luxury market is offline. Right? So and it, it serves as a drop-off location as well, right? For the supply side. Yes. So that's actually why it's super valuable for us because we actually do, it's a two-way street. So it's actually a, a marketplace as well, right? So you can be a buyer and buy product. You can be a seller and sell product. We have what we call the rebag bar where in an hour uh, we can review the product, uh, we can evaluate it, we can authenticate it, and we can pay. And so that's, you know, we were told, I guess we're closing the loop there. That's sort of the the ultimate immediacy, right? Because you know, no appointment, you you, you get your liquidity essentially within the hour, right? And so that's, that's awesome. one of the ways that we've been getting a good supply. Great. So we'll we'll include all of this information um, on the show notes as well. Thank you so much again, Charles. Ah, super. It was amazing. 